please stand for the reading of God's holy word. This morning we're looking at 1 John chapter 1. That's just the first four verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's, let's pray. Our great... God and Father, we thank you for bringing us all here today to worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you for the precious gift and treasure of Holy Scripture, your word, which is truth. May we always cherish and recognize it as your divinely inspired word, the ultimate authority in our faith and practice a holy and infallible book able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus and fully equip us for every good work. Now grant us the wisdom to understand its teachings as your word is clear and sufficient for our salvation and daily living. We seek its guidance above all else as we devote ourselves to your glory. We thank you for preserving your word throughout history ensuring that it remains accessible to us so that we can have it open in our laps this morning and search its glorious riches. And we pray that it would be made so obvious to us that your word is indeed a powerful means of grace made effectual by the ministry of your spirit. As, we, as your word is expounded and applied, we pray that you grant us ears to hear and hearts to believe that our lives would be truly changed for the better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as you'll see this Sunday, this morning, we're beginning a, a new series. I always preach through books of the Bible, rarely topically, and it'll take us uh, probably till the end of the year to, to get through this book of the Bible, a book entitled First John. It's, it's usually called the Epistle of First John. If so, it's a very unusual one, because for one thing, there isn't any real indication here that it is an epistle at all. Um, it doesn't begin as the rest of the New Testament epistles do, or most of the other New Testament of the epistle, epistles, with the, you know the identification of the author and uh, you know and of the recipients, and then followed by some word of you know greeting. And it also doesn't sign off uh, or, or conclude the way other New Testament epistles tend to do. So I think a more accurate designation of this for this you know, unaddressed and unsigned document, it would be a treatise or a, a discourse, perhaps even you might say a sermon, very brief sermon. Um, but again, for the sake of custom, I'll still be referring to it as the epistle or letter of John, the first epistle of John. 
In terms of authorship, the evidence leads to that conclusion that in all likelihood, this was indeed penned by the Apostle John. This is indicated not within uh, the, the text itself, uh, but by Christian tradition and uh, also by the remarkable similarity of it, both in form and content and style, uh, to the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. Uh, as the fourth gospel, so also this first epistle, uh, we see the author presenting himself clearly as, as an eyewitness to the entire ministry of Jesus. Uh, he writes from the vantage point of one who was there, uh, who walked side by side with God in human form. What he himself had seen with his own eyes uh, and heard with his own ears and, and touched with his own hands uh, was, was sufficient to show that in the, the person of Jesus, God actually walked among men, the eternal entered time. And so even though the author is not identified by name within this document, we can safely assume it was none other than John. John, the son of Zebedee. John, the beloved disciple. John, the apostle of Jesus Christ. And his opening words here, verses 1 through 4, you might call it the prologue of the first epistle, uh, contain his firsthand testimony to the, the, the mystery of the incarnation, first of all, verses 1 and 2, followed by uh, essentially his invitation to others to share with him in the joyful experience of fellowship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, the Christ whom he to whom he testifies and whom he proclaims. But before we you know, go into the, those uh, verses 1 through 4 a little more deeply, I, I, let me just say something in this first installment of our series about you know, the, the bigger picture of the whole epistle or about the overarching purpose and goal of John in writing it. Uh, when John comes to the end of it, when the, the chapter 5 of this letter, he actually makes it clear just why he is writing, what his purpose is. If you want to look at it, it's chapter 5, verse 13. And so as we continue through this series, I want you to keep this verse always before you in mind. Because John says this, and I'll just make a brief comment or two about it in some of the historical context in a minute. But John says this, his purpose. He says, I write these things, and I write, I write whole sermon, letter, epistle. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So clearly, John, the apostle, he's, he's not um, writing so that unbelievers would come to believe necessarily. That's not his main purpose. And he's not satisfied that those who have believed should simply should receive eternal life. Period. No, because it's his further purpose that those who believe should know that they have received eternal life. In other words, his goal in the epistle here is assurance. He wants true believers to be assured of their salvation, to know for certain uh, that they have eternal life, to, as we sang earlier, to be persuaded of that. So his main theme here in the epistle, and so it's, we're going to see this will unfold more and more in coming weeks. His main theme is really a series of, of tests by which we can know if we are in Christ. You know, beliefs, attitudes, behaviors, 
you know, doctrinal, moral, and spiritual criteria that authenticate one's claims to be a true child of God and heir of eternal life, heir of heaven. And so by enlarging on this overall theme, or you know, writing to, to, with this goal in mind, John helps all professing believers, on the one hand, avoid a dangerous presumption, what we might call false assurance, and helps all genuine believers avoid a debilitating uncertainty or doubt or lack of assurance. And of course, with most epistles, there's a story behind this one, what, what scholars refer to as the occasion, which gave rise to the composition of it. Uh, and again, it's not, outward, it's not stated overtly, but you can infer it uh, from kind of reading between the lines, uh, looking at the context. We gather from that internal evidence, John was impelled to you know, enlarge and elaborate upon this theme by um, some unsettling, troubling circumstances in his own church where he served, or, or perhaps even you know, a group of churches or a regional church. Simply put, false teachers or counterfeit Christians uh, had, had infiltrated the community of faith. And these imposters were seeking to lead others in a, in a new direction, a direction different from that laid out by Christ and the apostles. So this heretical sect, they deemed the incarnate, they, they denied the incarnation, that watershed doctrine, and insisted, rather, that fellowship with God could only be had in fellowship with them. In other words, only be had in being joined to their uh, false sect. And certainly not by being joined to the apostles and their teaching. And so as a result of this, there, there, there appears to be, as, it can, as again, as you sort of read between the lines of, of the, the, the epistle, there really uh, it seems quite obvious that there had been a, you know, a traumatic church split. You know, th th these, this one group departed and formed a new congregation, a, a new sect. Uh, and, and in the wake of this schism or rupture, that the Christians who remained in the original church, you know, you can naturally understand how they, they, they were wondering at this point, questioning whether they were on the right track. Um, you know, they, they weren't all trained theologians that went to Reformed Theological Seminary. So there's, you know, there's this, there's this air of uncertainty among the, these believers who John calls little children. Um, and John weighed in on this as the oldest living apostle with, with great pastoral heart as a kind of a spiritual grandfather in the faith to put his little children back on track, right? To, to, to refocus them back to the truths of the foundational gospel message, the apostolic truth. In short, John wanted both to expose the, 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 the hypocrisy uh, of the counterfeit believers who weren't really believers at all, as well as to confirm the faith of the authentic ones, the genuine believers. He wanted his little children to be sure, 
to be firmly persuaded that they indeed possessed eternal life. So this was his overarching purpose at every point in the epistle, including these first four verses of the introduction or the prologue, which we're looking at this morning. John, as John launches into his letter, this sort of o- the opening salvos, as it were, uh, he, he does so without any personal greeting or personal reference. And notice where he begins. He begins with Christ. He begins with Christ, because if we want to know that we have eternal life, our starting point must always be Christ. Our assurance of eternal life is grounded first and foremost in the person and work of Christ. Indeed, John's entire theme of assurance begins with here and is based upon throughout his reliable first-hand testimony to Christ. And so he begins with Christ. Makes sense. Saying, that which was from the beginning. I'm reading verses 1 and 2 again. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And so John launches into this exposition of his overarching theme uh, by first grounding his readers, which includes us reading it, grounding us in the objective historical reality of the gospel, the essential core and content of the gospel, which is the, the, the awe-inspiring fact of the incarnation. Because that the incarnation of the Son of God, that lies at the very heart of the Christian faith. Without it, there's no Savior to die and rise again savingly for us. It's the great prerequisite. In no other way could God deal justly with the sin that set us under his just judgment and separate us from God and provide us with the righteousness and life that would fit us for fellowship with him and ultimately for his presence. In the God-man, in this one, with whom John begins his epistle, God was reconciling the world to himself, making peace. And here, John is thrusting that fact in the foreground. This fact that the pre-existent Son of God, second person of the Trinity who had continuous face-to-face fellowship with the Father for all eternity, had entered into history on a mission to save, having really assumed a complete human nature having led a complete human life and died a real human death for us and for our salvation. And if all that seems so basic, so rudimentary to you, heard it all before, good, that's exactly the point. 
I hope I'm saying nothing new to any of you this morning. This is so basic and central. And then notice how John describes Jesus here as the word of life. I think the word word should be capitalized here. Um, because do you hear in, in that title, the echo from the prologue of John's gospel, the fourth gospel, where John says, in the beginning was the word, the logos. And the word was with, so he's not talking about words or message or just, you know, something in writing. Person of the Son. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Hearing the echoes so far. And then John goes on to say, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. And so at the heart of the Christian gospel, they said it lies this fact that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, and that the life, the eternal life, which was with the Father from the beginning, from all eternity, was made manifest in time and space. The eternal word, who is eternal life, took personal form in a man who could be seen and heard and even handled and touched. He entered human history as a real human being without ceasing to be very God of very God. And John and his fellow apostles, they heard him speak. They saw him with their own eyes, not as a mystical vision, but a living reality. They even touched him physically both before and after his resurrection. And so John testified, and he proclaimed this truth, that Jesus is the enfleshed Lagos, the personal embodiment of eternal life. That God's eternal word, his only begotten son, was manifested in the flesh. That eternal life is a person, not just a thing. A real man who really lived who really died, who really rose again, who's really seated at God's right hand. So this is the watershed doctrine of Christianity, the heart of the good news, the glorious fact of God in flesh, the word of life incarnate. And this is the Christ that the church proclaims to the world without shame or apology, and that the world stumbles over repeatedly. Probably nothing more infuriates our world or is going to be more politically incorrect than our insistence on this uniqueness of Christ, the God-man, that he is the self-revelation of the eternal God and the exclusive giver of life, indeed the embodiment of that life. But John says that this is indeed an indisputable fact, not a myth, not a story. In Jesus Christ, we are brought face to face with the living and true God, the only God. The gospel of Jesus is not one among many options for men and women to choose from. You have it your way. Follow your thing. No, it is the one and only way for anyone to be reconciled to God, to be restored into a right relationship with him, and to be rescued from the coming wrath. How could it be otherwise when Jesus 
is who he is. What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. The life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. The life. And you see in the mystery of the incarnation, in this great event, the life, that life was made manifest, declares John. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. With the Father from all eternity, made manifest to us in time. And you see, beloved, unless and until we are united to him, to Christ, who is the eternal life, we remain in a state of spiritual death. Dead in our trespasses, trespasses and sins and under the God's wrath and curse, facing the nightmare prospect of eternal separation from God in hell forever. But you see, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to obtain for us that life, that life which our first parents had forfeited. And therefore, whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life and can know they have eternal life. And what is the essence of that eternal life? It's not you know, some abstraction. Or, or I think the essence of the eternal life is identified in our text John speaks of, in a word of fellowship. So the essence of eternal life is really to be in fellowship with God the Father and in fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ. Isn't this the fellowship that Jesus prayed for when he was on earth? And we were looking a few weeks back at John chapter 17 and Jesus said, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Well, this is also the fellowship that John describes in our text. This, as he says in verse three, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, also to you, so that, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. You see what John's doing there? He's proclaiming really the great purpose of the gospel. You know, the heart of the gospel, as we see in verses 1 and 2, the heart is, the core is the fact of the incarnation. The great purpose and effect of the gospel is explained here in verse 3. It was for the creation of Fellowship. A Greek word translated fellowship is koinonia. It could be translated communion. It means to live a shared life. Using classical Greek as a favorite expression for the marriage relationship, which is the most intimate bond between human beings. It is especially appropriate to describe our personal our intimate relationship with the living and true God, our covenant Lord. Fellowship. Koinonia. Communion. Participation. A shared life. I think the order of John's words is interesting to think about and noteworthy in, in our passage. I think it's, it's telling us something that 
we, that can get uh, easily overlooked. A point that's of secondary importance to the main point, which is fellowship with God. But notice how instead of mentioning God first, he speaks of fellowship. He first speaks of fellowship with us. You see that? Fellowship with us. That is fellowship with the apostles. That's what he means. So what's he driving at? Well, I think he seems to be stressing the point that the only way that you or I or anyone can have fellowship with God, the Father and the Son, is to believe and to embrace what the apostles taught about Jesus Christ, God incarnate. And John's saying that when you, when you embrace these things, and you come to believe them and continue steadfastly in this teaching, you have fellowship with us. It's kind of as if he's saying to, to the, the church, he's saying when you believe what we have taught, what we the apostles have taught about Jesus Christ, then, only then, you are a part of the true family of God. There's no other way into genuine membership of the body of Christ. And there's no other way into true communion with God than by believing, by being joined to the apostolic testimony and teaching concerning God incarnate. You cannot know God without knowing Christ. You cannot, have, you cannot know or experience fellowship without receiving the truth, the testimony about Christ. Genuine fellowship is grounded in the gospel of Christ. That is the treasure which all believers have in common that we share. Because we have Christ and he has brought us into the Father. We all belong to the one family, the family of God. And so a reminder that God's goal, the, uh, his purpose in rescuing sinners, uh, which is also the goal of gospel proclamation, is not only to save us you know, individually, separately from sin and its consequences, but also to bring us into the fellowship of his family, that we would become part of the church built upon the foundation of the apostles, and that we would have true shared life together in our fellowship with the living and true God. And that's why John adds, and indeed, uh, he does go on to say the main point, and indeed our fellowship, which by extension would be the fellowship of all who believe the apostolic testimony, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So the fellowship we have with one another is, is precious indeed. The communion of the saints. What a joy. But it is the second greatest privilege that we have in this world. We must never forget that, that it is fellowship with God that comes first. Since our fellowship with one another arises from and depends on our fellowship with God. It's fellowship with the Father and with His Son and also with the Holy Spirit, who's not mentioned in this particular text, but it's communion, participation, a shared life with the triune God. We partake of the life that he imparts, and that's part of the goal, the purpose of the gospel. 
and his proclamations to bring people to know this, to experience what true life is, what, what is the essence of eternal life. Because of sin, no man in his fallen condition has fellowship with God. Our catechism puts it quite well and succinctly. All mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God. It's lost. goes on to say, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. See, our first relationship with God was so lost by sin that there was no possibility in ourselves of any return to God, of any restoration of this fellowship. But let's take to heart and, and believe together John's testimony and what he is proclaiming to the church then and now through all generations, the word of life. The eternal life was manifested. The life was made visible. The life was made audible and tangible in human flesh for us and for our salvation. And only through this Jesus can the barrier between a holy God and sinful humanity be removed. Only through this Jesus can fellowship and communion with the living God be restored in all of its fullness and, and, and glory. And John wants us to, to know this, to be assured. In effect, he's saying, look, I knew this Jesus. I touched him. I saw him. I heard him. I knew who he was. I know who he is. I know what he taught. And I'm reinforcing that with you. I want you to be confident in what we have said about his person and about his work because I saw him. I touched him. I handled him. I laid my head on his chest at, at, the, at the Last Supper. He spoke to me. He called me his beloved disciple. I saw him crucified. I saw him risen from the dead. I saw him ascend into heaven. You can be confident. You can trust that what I say is absolutely reliable and true. And so I proclaim this to you, that you may know that you have passed from death to life to eternal life in fellowship not only with us and one another, but above all in fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the fellowship that John experienced and enjoyed. And it is something that every believer can share with him even now. Our blessings are nonetheless real because they rest on faith rather than sight. Faith in that testimony rather than eyewitness encounter. To us, I would say the words of Jesus spoken to, spoken to Thomas are applicable and encouraging. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so that means because though we have not personally seen or heard or touched Jesus, we can know that we have eternal life. And therefore, John begins his letter by pointing back to his eyewitness experience and reminding his readers that his words can be trusted because he's one of the apostles who actually heard Jesus, saw him with his own eyes, touched him with his own hands. doesn't get better than that. His testimony about Jesus is historically reliable, trustworthy, and fellowship with God which is the essence of eternal life, 
ultimately stems from faith in this Jesus whom John proclaimed then and whom I proclaim today, that eternal word incarnate, the manifestation and embodiment of life, eternal life. Faith in him is the gateway to, to fellowship. And that fellowship, as John indicates in verse 4, is really is the fountain of joy, fullness of joy. Without this fellowship, our joy cannot be complete. Fullness of joy comes when we have entered into this, uh, what one writer calls this, one ageless universal fellowship. A fellowship springing from the Godhead, coursing through the apostles, and flowing through every genuine believer who has ever been or ever will be. We are now and eternally in living fellowship, communion with the one who was from the beginning. And you see, that is that should make us truly joyful, happy. That is a fellowship worth celebrating. It is also a fellowship worth living out. So, beloved, let us not grow weary of holding on to Christ through holding on to the apostles and holding out to the world the joyful good news of our gospel. Let's pray. <clears throat> our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we could begin our journey through this wonderful book of the New Testament written by John, your apostle, um, which expresses to us from its very beginning the sort of foundation of our faith as a church family. We thank you for the incredible gift of the incarnation where the divine word became flesh in the person of Christ. How this act of love is at the core of our Christian faith. And we pray that as a church we may always stand firmly on this foundation, recognizing that through it, you deal justly with our sins and offer us uh, reconciliation and eternal life. And Lord, help us to embrace the uniqueness of Jesus as the exclusive way, the truth and the life. May his presence in our lives always be the guiding light. May his gospel remain at the center of our message to the world. We yearn for that deep fellowship, that communion with you, our Heavenly Father, and with Jesus Christ, the Son. Grant us the grace to nurture this communion within our church community. Let it be characterized by love and unity and a shared purpose in glorifying your name. And as a church, as a local church, may we hold fast to the apostolic testimony about Jesus, God incarnate. Help us to be unwavering in our commitment to proclaiming that and sharing that good news. Let our message be a beacon of hope to those who are seeking truth and life. And Lord, in our fellowship with one another, may we reflect the unity and love that you desire for your church. Strengthen the bonds of friendship and faith among us. And may our shared life be a testimony to your grace. In our experiences individually and together, may we find the same assurance that John had in his firsthand encounters with Jesus Christ. May our faith in him be unwavering 
and may we find joy, fullness of joy in our fellowship with you and with one another. With all these things we ask in the name of Jesus, who is the word of life. Amen.